It's great to be back. Just um, knowing some of your elders what a privilege and a joy it has been for me to come. This is my third time this summer. And, uh, you know, it, I think sometimes you're in a church, you can kind of lose sight of the big picture. And every now and then, you know, I think God calls us out on missions trips or he calls us to preach occasionally for another church where a pastor is on sabbatical and you get a sense of man god's doing a lot of stuff out there and it has just been a joy for me to come and get to know some of you and to hear about some of the work that god's doing in your hearts and lives i'm starting to feel like we're one church with one savior who's doing some great stuff um, and uh and so i just want to say it's yeah, everybody always, when I come, they're like, thank you for sacrificing and being here. I just want to say, this hasn't been a sacrifice for me. This has been a blessing. So it's great to be here. Um, we're going to turn our attention to another passage in Genesis. Genesis 18, 16 through 33. And so if you want to turn there, that'd be good. I want to bring myself up to speed. Because you guys have been here hearing sermons on uh, on, on this uh, this narrative that we're walking through of Abraham and Sarah and uh, their, uh, the promise that God has given them. Um, but the last time I was here, Abraham and Abram, as he was called then, and Sarai had taken matters into their own hands. And uh, that didn't go well, right? But God was very gracious with them and very gracious with Hagar. And, uh, and God had restored uh, them and continues to restore them in the subsequent chapters that you've heard preached since I was last year. Um, you know, there's there's new reassurance that you've been reminded of that Abram received, right? It came in the form of a new sign, right? Reminding Abraham as he got a new name, right? And Sarah, as she got a new name, God was like, I'm really pressing on you that this promise is going to happen. I'm giving you lots of ways to remember that. That happened while I was gone, right? You guys correct me. You were here, I wasn't. Okay. So there's new covenant signs, there's new names. Big Daddy has become father of many. Right? And Princess has become mother of nations. Right? He's really pressing on their, their remembering the promise. And that's a really great gift, considering that they had forgotten it and taken it into their own hands. God could have come in judgment, but he didn't. He came with reassurance. And there's one really big joke that happened while I was gone. Did you, did you catch it? It had to do with laughter and a kid's name, right? The promise keeps getting reiterated, keeps getting reiterated, and what does Abraham do? He laughs. And then what does Sarah do? Well, she laughs. And God says, oh, you guys think this is funny. You think it's funny that I'm going to actually give you a child. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a child. And it, you're going to laugh, but his name is going to be laughter. Right? God makes a big joke to remind Abraham and Sarah of the promise. He's giving them all these different gifts. He's coming at it in all kinds of different ways to reassure them, to highlight for them the, the, the silliness of their lack of faith. And his faithfulness is still present, even in spite of it. Okay, so that's what I've missed, right? In summary, this passage, we're going to shift. It's going to be like, 
um, we're going to kind of pan to the left as we've been focused on Abraham and Sarah and their family and the covenant promises and what God's been doing with them. We're going to check in on the world in this passage and see how things are going in the world. And it's going to feel a bit like this. Those of you who are familiar with texting and memes, there's a meme with a dog drinking coffee in a house on fire. You know the meme I'm talking about? And at the bottom it just says, it's fine. Right? <laughs> and the whole thing is burning down around him. Okay, That's what this passage is going to feel like a little bit. We're, this next kind of like narrative section, we're going to shift to the house that's burning and on fire. The rest of the world. What's going on with the rest of the world? And we're going to be reminded in this that there's a purpose to this promise and the work that God's doing with Abraham and Sarah that goes beyond them and their family. He's meant to be a blessing to all nations. Meanwhile, let's check in on the other nations. Right? Things aren't going so well. Names are very important. I've made that point several times in several sermons that I've preached here. Hopefully others have as well. Uh, you know, this passage, the, the chapter begins, and Ross was here last week preaching about this, with Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, right? Right? Which, it, Mamre means vitality or vigor, right? It's a picture of plenty, uh, of comfort being, you know, in this lush, you know, kind of uh, forest, almost, right? This, this glen of trees, right? You have this very nice picture of where he is. Um, I'm convinced that the Oaks of Mamre are a subdivision in Cary. Maybe if you did. <laughs> But uh, I'm pretty sure that's true, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but, it, you know, it's this picture of, like, being in a really nice place. And then God's going to lead Abram to this overlook. And we're going to look at two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you have to go really deep back into, like, ancient Hebrew to understand what these names mean. In fact, scholars aren't really sure of this. But, um, and I'm definitely not sure because Hebrew is hard. Um, but Sodom, as near as I can tell, based on the scholars that I have read, probably means like burnt over, right? So we're in the Oaks of Mamre, and we're looking over on the burnt over city. And uh, Gomorrah means ruined heap. It's a little foreshadowing in the names, isn't there? <laughs> right? I'm not going to ruin how this story ends, but you. Our, the story's ending is ruined by the names, right? So, so here's Abram in this place of plenty. We pan over and the dog's drinking coffee and everything's on fire. And it's fine, okay? The cities of the world. Sodom and Gomorrah are really meant to be representative of the world. Okay, that's enough introduction. Let's read the passage. Genesis 18, 16 through 33. <clears throat> then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. Abram, Abraham sorry, went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham surely shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, 
Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find that Sodom will be righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking? What about that? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. <coughs> Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. What a fun passage. Let's pray. <coughs> oh Lord God, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your promise. We're so grateful for how you worked your promise through Abraham, Sarah, and their offspring, and how that promise is a blessing to all nations. Lord, would you help us as we look at this word to understand how it applies to us? Lord, would you be merciful to us in teaching us from it? And Lord, would you empower us to be like you are, just merciful. Lord, help us to do this. We pray this in the sake, in the name of Jesus Christ. And for his name. In Jesus name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so this is a fun passage, isn't it? It's kind of quirky. You're kind of like, okay, what's going on here? Um, I do want to remind you one thing I forgot to mention in my introduction. There's three men in this passage, but it's also clear that the three men, at least one of them is God, right? Um, and, and some have argued that maybe the three men are the Trinity. Some have argued that it's like Jesus and two angels. Um, the point to get, right, is that these three men, in some sort of mysterious way, represent God. And Abraham is before God is dealing with it, okay, for our purposes. And, and, and Abraham is doing something really remarkable here. Um, he's, he's interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, these terrible cities. And we're going to look at that. And, and, and essentially, what we see here is a, a courtroom drama, right? Um, God has descended to judge, right? Because he has heard the outcries of people about these two terrible cities. And so we're getting a glimpse into, and Abraham's getting a glimpse into, the justice of the judge of all the earth, as he calls it. Okay, so we're going to get a glimpse into that along with him. And, and to look at that, we're going to do that in three parts. First, how God's mercy can bring justice. Because I think oftentimes we think about justice and mercy as being opposites. I want to push on that a little bit. 
want to talk about how God's mercy can bring justice. We're going to look at the courtroom of the judge of all the earth, specifically, and then we're going to look at how God's justice can bring mercy. So first, how God's mercy can bring justice, the courtroom of the judge of all the earth, and then how God's justice can bring mercy. So that's our outline. So let's dive in. God's mercy can bring his justice. Now, this whole kind of thing begins, God says, with him hearing the outcries of people who are concerned about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and I want to point out, because I think oftentimes like we, we see this passage, we see um, like what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, and we see all judgment. And a lot of people, especially non-Christians, kind of come to this passage and they go, see, the God of the Old Testament was just judgment. He was just pouring out fire and water on people left and right, trying to wipe them out because he was just so you know, concerned with judging people. He's just so judgmental, God, in the Old Testament. God in the New Testament, he's so much nicer. He's merciful, right? Um, I want you to see that God coming down to essentially adjudicate justice is an act of mercy. There's a group of people who are like down there suffering because of the oppression of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they themselves are sinful. All of mankind has sinned. They've been kicked out of the garden. They are no longer deserving of a just society, right? In fact, the brokenness of the world is part of their consequence for that. And yet, they're crying out because of the injustice to God. He would be totally just, I would argue, right, in saying, you know what, you made your bed, now sleep in it. Sometimes I do this as a father. I have my five children. Like, sometimes I retreat up into my bedroom where I can shut the door and I can do things like work on sermons, right? Or think, or just have a moment to myself, right? And somebody starts clamoring. Dad, someone did something terrible. They took my favorite plate and they're eating on it instead of letting me eat on my favorite plate, right? Or it actually is something terrible, like they hit me, right? And, and I just, you know, I've been around my kids long enough to know, like when that happens, there's two sides to this, <laughs> right? So they're coming up and, you know, I'm just kind of down there. I'm, I, my first question is always, and so what did you do? <laughs> right? What did you do? And they never want to talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, when I find the perpetrator of the terrible crime, they all, that's all they want to talk about is what the other one did. The reality is, is that these, these outcries for justice that we have, like going towards a perfectly righteous God, right? like while some of them are right, there is a reality in which all of us are part of this bed that we have made down here on earth with all of our injustice that we cast around left and right. And sometimes as a dad, what I just want to do is say, you know what? Go down there and y'all work it out. You have to deal with this because you're part of the problem. I don't want anything to do with it. Don't bother me. I'm working on a sermon. That might or might not have literally happened while I was writing this. <laughs> you know what? Though, I'm convicted by this passage that I'm working on. I'm kind of like, you know what? God doesn't do that. Out of his great mercy, he comes down. Out of his great mercy, he comes down to give justice. 
So when you start thinking about justice and mercy as opposites, you know, think about this passage because God coming and bringing justice, restoring order, showing what is right, bringing about kind of some sort of um, uh, some sort of just kind of punishment is actually a mercy to those who have experienced oppression that, that led to that punishment. We, we wrestle with this, I think. We wrestle with the relationships of justice and mercy. But here we see God in his mercy moving towards justice. And, and here's what I want to say to you. Like, God is not like me. He's not too busy, nor has he written you off to care about the injustices that you experience. I think sometimes we, we as Presbyterians who are very you know, familiar with our total depravity, we, we think, you know, God's not going to be bothered with the injustice we face. We're not going to bother to cry out. He cares. I want you to see in this passage, there's an incredible statement about the mercy of God for those of you who've experienced oppression. And all of us have, to some degree or another. Now, I will say this, in this country, you know, oftentimes I think a lot of us, the majority of us, have not experienced a lot of oppression. But you go to countries where they have, and you know, there's this shift in the, the kind of like attractiveness of the characteristics of God. We love to talk about his forgiveness and mercy here in this country, I think a lot of times because we haven't experienced a lot of injustice. But you go to a place where they have, and you know what's attractive to them about that? His justice. He's a just God. He's going to make all of this right. And, you know, here's, here's how I know that we don't really think that way as Americans very much. One of my favorite hymns, one of my favorite hymns, I, I kind of got to like this when I was in college, a, a pastor that I had at the time um, was really fond of this hymn, and he impressed upon me a love of it. But the, the name of the hymn is, Oh, Quickly Come, Dread Judge of All. That's one of my favorites. Then do you guys ever sing that? It's been a while. Most most of us don't. Most people, when I tell them that, they're just like they shrink away and they're like, "You're an awful person. Why is that your favorite hymn? It should be Amazing Grace. That's the rest. Like that's the the best. Not a quickly come dredge at all. The only reason I can figure that we just really don't like that hymn. First of all, we don't really understand what the word dread means anymore. Archaic use of the word dread means um, uh, it means awe, awful, awesome, right? So quickly come, oh, awesome judge of all, right? It's kind of the, the, the meaning originally as it was written. Um, we think of dread as like, oh, we're scared of this terrible person, right? That, that, that's what I think kind of people hear when they hear that. But you get past the title, and this hymn is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of God bringing justice and order to a world that doesn't deserve it. Listen to the words. But quickly come, dread judge of all, for awful though thine advent be, your coming. All shadows from the truth will fall, and falsehood die inside of thee. But quickly come, for doubt and fear like clouds dissolve when thou art near. What a beautiful picture of God coming and restoring order lies, falsehood dies inside of God. Are you sick of lies? I am so sick of lies. Fake news. (laughs) I don't even know what's true anymore. I'm ready for God to come back. 
and for all of the falsehood to die right at his feet. And for us to be revealed for the first time, it's really true. Aren't you ready for that? Oh, quickly come, dread judge of all, right? How about this one? For doubt and fear, like clouds dissolve when you are near, doubt and fear are going to dissolve when this judge comes. This dread judge, this this amazing, awesome judge, he's going to remove all doubt and all fear. All the truth is going to be revealed, and we will be restored into a kingdom that is perfect and righteous. Would you like some of that? Amen. I like some of that. I like rejoicing over the fact that God brings that. And it is by his mercy that he comes, because we don't deserve that at all. Okay. So, we do want God to come in judgment. <laughs> Just accept it. Admit that a quickly come judge of all. You like that now. Maybe we can start singing this song. <laughs> but let's look at that judgment. Let's shift to the second point of our sermon. Let's look at the courtroom of the judge of the, all the earth. Because that's what we get here. Now, young people, all of you who just stood up, I'm about to lose you. I'm going to use an illustration that only, you know, the older folks in the room get. Um, but when I was a kid, there was a television show that starred Andy Griffith. Yeah, okay, yeah. Old people are like, yeah, finally. <laughs> Andy Griffith, you know what show I'm talking about? It was a courtroom drama. Say it out loud. Matlock, right? Matlock, Andy Griffith was this cunning old Southern lawyer, and he was a defense attorney, and he just never, almost never, I think there were a couple times, almost never defended anybody who was really guilty. They were always innocent. Um, but they were falsely accused, and he shows up, and he's just advocating for them. And, I mean, he's just so good at it. He's so cunning and, and, and witty, and he'd bring that Southern charm. And I used to watch that show all the time. Just to see, man, how's Matlock going to get him out of this one, right? Well, that's that's kind of what I thought of when I think about this, because God's basically saying, hey, we're going to have a trial. And Abraham shows up kind of as an attorney. So but let's look at the trial first of all. Um, God says, shouldn't we tell Abraham what we're about to do? He's laying a foundation in which he wants Abraham to know about his justice. He wants Abraham to know what justice and righteousness are. Because if Abraham is going to produce a nation that's supposed to be his people, they're supposed to reflect that, right? And, and moreover, he wants Abraham to know that because he wants the foundation of that justice and mercy in Abraham's offspring and their kingdom to be rooted and grounded in his justice and mercy. Okay? So let's look at the just process of God. It's going to feel familiar to you. It's like a courtroom. Verse 20, the oppressed, wronged, cry out. There's an accusation. You see? There's an accusation. Um, and, and the accusation of against Sodom and Gomorrah, it's important to understand that it's not merely sexual sin. Because Sodom, in our kind of like English language, is synonymous with a specific kind of sin. And because the story you're about to hear kind of like focuses it on that. We think that's really what was going on there and that was it. Um, it was much broader than just that. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah had become completely godless. They were doing terrible things. And the crying out of oppressed people, there was literal oppression. Um, Ezekiel talks about the prideful abundance of food that Sodom had, but that they didn't help the poor and the needy. 
So the lack of care for the poor was a part of the accusation. And this term crying out, it's the same phrase that um, we see in Exodus when God's people who are being oppressed by the Egyptians cry out to God. So this, this accusation is one of, like, all of that is just and right has been thrown out the window. God, you've got to do something. And so that's the accusation. And then notice in verse 21, God comes down to see. Now, does God literally have to come down to see class? No, God has a great vantage point from heaven and, you know, his omniscience. <laughs> he, he sees everything, but what he's doing is modeling for Abraham what a just process looks like. You don't just take an accusation at face value, right? There needs to be evidence. There needs to be investigation. We need to look into this. And so God comes down to see, right? You don't, you don't just, I don't just take it at face value when one of my kids comes up and says, the other one did this terrible thing. Like, well, it's your side of this, right? So God comes down to investigate. And this is, this is important, you know, because I think sometimes we think God is not fair, but he's showing us here, I care. I care not only about those who are, those who are making an accusation, but also those who are accused. Now, I think in our society, we have injustice that exists on both sides. There are people who have been oppressed who make an accusation. And then there are people who make accusations that are false. And people who are accused are false, are being, being oppressed, right? God cares about both, do you see? That's how robust his justice is. Okay, so he comes down, there needs to be evidence. And then um, verse 21, the second half of it, he says, and if it's not true, I will know. Now, this is where God's justice and our justice diverge. There are some times when my kids come up and they're talking to me about all the injustice that they've, they've experienced, and it's back and forth and back and forth, and there's different accounts, and I wasn't there, and I have no idea what has happened, right? God doesn't experience that. <laughs> Thankfully, God says, if it's not true, I'll know. Because I am omniscient, because I am investigating, I am paying attention, I am watching. You know, the other a couple of weeks ago, um, we had blink cameras. You know, blink cameras. They're Amazon's little surveillance cameras, and they're battery operated. You can put them everywhere as long as they're like within range of your Wi-Fi, and like the camera shoots directly to your phone. It's great. I love spying on everything that's happening. Um, in fact, there's been a couple of times that kids have come to me because they've had a disagreement on our back deck. Oh, I have a blink camera on our back deck. And so there's been one, at least one case where one kid was kind of like, I didn't do that. And I'm like, oh, really? Look at this. And I've been able to show them. And they're like, okay. This, that's, that's God's justice. He's, he's got blink cameras everywhere. <laughs> the other night, a guy came, because we live in downtown, and, and every now and then, these people come by, and they just try our car doors to see if they're unlocked. We screw close enough to them when that happens. It happens from time to time. Well, the other night, I happened to be up when one of them came by. And my wife happened to leave the car door unlocked. And so a guy opened the door, and I got a buzz on my phone. And I looked at it, and I'm like, there's a guy in my car. I could see it on the blink camera on my side view house. And I'm like, what do I do? I, I thought, do I go out there and confront him? That seems dangerous. What do I do? I, so, you know what I did? Blink cameras have an intercom. 
So I turned on the intercom and I said, get out of the car. <laughs> Just like that. I have the recording of all of it. Um, my wife loves to make fun of the voice that I made when I said it. And, and you know what he did? He got out of the car. God knows. God sees. God's just justice is based in his omniscience. He will know. Right? He will know. So verse 21b, God's judgment is just. It's right. And here's the thing to think about. Are you sick of unjust judges? There's a lot of unjust judges. Sometimes it's because they're doing the best they can and they have the evidence that they have, they have the vantage point they have, they don't have the point cameras everywhere. And they're doing the best they can, but they sometimes are wrong. Isn't it good to know that there's a just judge who sees everything, who cares, who's watching, and who will know? And this next bit, the last bit of kind of the, the courtroom judge of all the earth, there's an execution. Um, God is going to act. Verses 22 through 23 and, and chapter 19 um, make it clear. Um, he says that he's going to sweep away the wicked. Um, God is going to act. You know, I think we, we act like God isn't oftentimes. And, and I think that's the problem in our society. You know, our entire justice system in the Western world is built upon the idea that there is a courtroom judge of all the earth who is just to the same everything. You see it in courtroom, right? You go to a courtroom, what do they have you put your hand on? On a Bible, right? And they and they say, you know, swear on this that you're gonna tell the truth. Why? Because you might fool us, but you're not gonna fool what you're doing is essentially calling down the judgment of that courtroom if you are breaking that up. And now here's the thing. We all live like there's no point cameras that God has. Like we're trying all these car doors and we're acting like he's not paying attention. But brothers and sisters, he's paying attention. He sees everything. We need to live, especially those of us who, like Abraham, have been shown what God is going to do. We ought to live as though we live in the face of God, that he's always that he sees everything. Now I'm going to confess to you, as a pastor and a preacher, I don't always do that. Oftentimes I think if I, I get away with something here, I've gotten away with it in heaven, but that's not true. That's not true, and we need to think about this. We need to live as though we are in the presence and face of God. You want to see how oftentimes this gets corrupted and perverted? There's no better example than at the end of the Gospels. We see a contrasting trial at the end of all of the Gospels in which God himself is put on trial by mankind. And there is nothing just about it. The perfect righteous one is convicted and executed. Right? That's what happens when mankind moves away from understanding that the God of the universe, the just one, is watching. And so that's what happens um, in contrast to what happens here, Sodom and Gomorrah deserved the judgment that they got. And it was a mercy to those who were being oppressed that God brought. But I also want to show you in this passage, the last point, God's justice can bring his mercy. Remember Andy Griffith? Here he comes. His name's Abraham, Abraham in this passage. 
in the heavenly courtroom, there are defense attorneys. Do you know what they're called? They're called priests. We just read the Westminster Confession's definition of them, right? But that's what priests are. They represent the people before God. And so Abraham comes before God. He approaches the bench, right? That's the, kind of the language of this passage. He draws near to God. He approaches him. And he starts pleading on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. What an incredible thing for him to do. Why does he care about Sodom and Gomorrah? You could argue that his you know, nephew walks down there you know, and he's concerned about him. I don't think that's it. I think he saw his call to be a blessing to all nations. He saw this as his place. Like, this is my role. I'm the defense attorney. I'm the priest. I must, I'm going to go and I'm going to plead on behalf of these people, these, these images of God. I'm going to go before God and I'm going to make a case. And so he, he starts building a case. And what is his defense built upon? Well, it's built upon this concept. The idea that if God's justice, if the sin of mankind can beget sin, if it's sin can spread, if sin can be applied um, to a community of people, maybe so could righteousness, right? So it's just, right, if there is sin, because God hates sin, sin is terrible, like he's got to obliterate sin, it's just for God to judge um, any sin and to destroy it. And if it infects a community, for him to destroy that community, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like he hates sin, right? But Abraham argues, but what if there is a minority of righteous people within that city? Would it also be unjust for God to, to, to obliterate them, right? Because of because of the sinfulness of evil. What if, doesn't God value righteousness? Does he just hate sin, or does he also value righteousness? That's Abraham's argument. And he goes and he says, far be it from you, the just God of the universe, to not value righteousness. And then they enter into this kind of unique kind of like bargaining phase. Um, maybe in courtroom language, you call it a plea bargain. And there's two kind of ways that you can read this, two, two approaches that people have done. The first I think is wrong. Um, it's, it's almost like Abraham is coming to God and trying to talk him into being merciful. Like he's coming and he's saying, you know, like we're gonna start at 50 and I'm gonna work my way down to 10. Um, I'm gonna enter in, you know, kind of easy and then I'm gonna kind of up the ante. And, and see if I can't get God to go lower and lower in terms of the number of righteous people that would need to be in the city in order for God to spare. I would submit to you that that's not what's going on. And here's why. Anybody ever bought a car? Yeah, okay. When you go to buy a car, do you go, hey, I, you know, they're asking $10,000 for this car. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna offer them 15. And then I'm gonna try and talk them down to 10, or eight, or five, right? Like, oftentimes people will kind of like post things for sale, and this is how the whole ancient world worked in terms of bartering and trading. Like, it was kind of like, I got this thing, what are you giving me for it? It's not like obvious what the price would be. And so you would start where, high or low, if you were trying to get that item? You start low, right? You go to buy a car, it's listed for 10,000, you kind of like, maybe I can get it for nine five. So you show up and you say, I'll give you nine. 
And then they come back and they say, well, you know, I can't do nine. Um, you know, what about nine eight? You say, well, what about nine five? And they said, done. And you're like, I did it, right? But what if you, you go and, and, and you say, hey, I'll give you nine. And they say, sure. You go, oh no. I should have said eight fives, <laughs> right? That's what's going on here, okay? Abraham's like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start low. I'm just, God, would you spare the city if there were 50? What about 50? And he's like, yeah, sure. He's like, oh no. <laughs> what if there's only 45? How about 45, God? 45? And he's like, yeah, sure. And then 30, and then 20, and then 10. And so what's being revealed is not Abraham's mercy being greater than God's, but God's being greater than Abraham's. Abraham started too high, and he didn't even go low enough. The whole trajectory of this you know, leads you to the fact, like, the reader would have been like, why didn't he go to one? Like, why not? God keeps saying yes. Why not? But he doesn't. And there's two theories as to why not. <laughs> why doesn't he? Two theories. One is that somewhere along the way, he realized there's no one righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, the best I got is my nephew, and I know him too well. <laughs> right? um, or, or maybe I could argue on my behalf, but I know me too well. So maybe he just gives up because there's no one righteous. And, and here's the thing. If we're building a case before God, the great judge of all the earth, that, hey, maybe there's one righteous person in the world, and for the sake of that one righteous person, he would spare a group of people, a larger group of people. Who would we build that case on? Romans says there's no one righteous, right? Do you know anybody perfectly righteous? I know that there's nobody downstairs in my family that's perfectly righteous that I could build that on. There's no one in my household, including me. There's no one in the city of Rome. There's no one anywhere. So maybe he gave up. Maybe he gave up because at this point, you know, he's just kind of like, I know who's in Sodom, and there's nobody I can build this case on. Or, but I don't know if that was it. The other thing is that maybe he felt like he was pressing his luck too far. Like, I've, I've tried, a, I've, you know, come back again and again. Eventually, God's going to give up on this and say, you know what, Buster, you've asked for enough. You're really pushing it. Let's just stop and attack, right? So maybe he gives up. I kind of tend to think it's a little bit of both, um, but I lean towards this second idea because here's the thing. God is always more merciful than we are. He is always more merciful than we are. And I think Abraham gave up on his mercy when he should have kept going. He wasn't um, the defense attorney that, uh, that was on par with the mercy of God. And the passage just, you know, it leads us with this longing, you know, like, if only, if only there was one person who was righteous enough, whose righteousness was so righteous, that it would be unjust for God to destroy people associated with him because of how much God valued his righteousness. If only there was one. Right? Gosh, I wish that were true. If only there was one who was so righteous 
that not only was he righteous unto him of himself, but like his righteousness led him to care and be compassionate towards others the same way that God was, that he was even willing to take on the penalty that they deserved upon himself. If only there was one like that. And if only there was a defense attorney that was so merciful that he would take God all the way to the limits of his mercy and argue for the sake of the many based on the one himself. Do you guys know anybody like that here at Christ Our Hope? His name might be Christ Our Hope. Right? This passage points us directly to Christ. It shows us that everything that Abraham, everything that the people of, of the ancient world needed, everything that Genesis was pointing towards is ultimately fulfilled and found in him. Now, we do that every week when we look at Genesis, don't we? Like, we see the seeds of all of the longing of mankind's needs that, that, are, that are sprouting up. We see them, them being met in Christ Jesus. There's one thing just in conclusion that I want to do with this today. I don't want to just stop there and say, you know, Jesus was the answer to everything. Um, he was. Uh, but I want to go a step further. You know, Jesus wasn't the only future priest. You know who else is referred to as priests in the New Testament besides Jesus? You know who else are defense attorneys? You know, ordained by God? us. We are called to be the Matlocks, right? To go before God and to intercede and to do it boldly. And you know what? We do it for the sake of the one, and you do it all the time. Every prayer we pray, how do we end it? In Jesus' name. Lord, would you do this for the sake of the one? The one who did it all. The one who answers all of our needs. Now, here's the thing. I think too often we're like Abraham, and we stop short of the mercy of God. We 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 sell Jesus short, like like, hey, he's not enough. I think there are people out there. There's darkness present in our cities that we have not yet pressed into. You know, Peter confessed Christ, and Christ said to him, "You are Peter, and on on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you." And I think that the church oftentimes hears that and thinks, okay, here are coming the gates. And Jesus is saying the gates of hell are not going to get us. That's not what he's saying. Gates don't approach. They don't, you know, attack in battle. You attack them. You see? Because we have been given the one, we have the ability to attack the gates of hell. To press into the dark places of the world and to essentially, like, plead for them on behalf of of, of the righteousness of Christ, on the, on the foundation of the righteousness of Christ. What that says to me is that there are places, dead places in the world that are going to hell that we are called to reclaim. And because of Jesus Christ, we can as believers. In Jesus' name, we can go. Here's my assignment for you, Christ Rattle. We know each other well enough now. I can give you an assignment. Maybe. I want you to think of 10. We're going to do this in honor of Abraham. I want you to think of 10 people you've given them hope on. 10 people. 
10 people that you think are so far gone, they've gone past Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want you to commit to pray for them. In Jesus' name. To plead before our merciful God that he would work. And I want you to put them on note cards and I want you to keep track of it for like a year. And I want you to see what God does. He may not do anything. I don't know what God will do. But I know this. Our God is far more merciful than we are. And he has called us because he has shown us what he is going to do. Because he has shown us his righteousness. Because he has shown us his justice and he has shown us his mercy. And he has shown us how they relate. That we can bank on his mercy. And we can lean on Jesus Christ. And out of him, we can do the things that he's called us to do. So Christ, our hope, would you hope in Christ? In these ways. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would come quickly. That you would be you would be the solution to all the confusion and fear and doubt and distress and oppression that we see in this world. Or would you come and wipe all the away? And Lord, would you, in your mercy, allow us to both be just and merciful as you are just and merciful? Lord, would you work through us in ways that are going beyond all we could ask or imagine? Would you show us how we fall short in terms of our hope and our desire for mercy? Would you reveal to us and blow us away yet again all the ways in which you are merciful above and beyond us? Lord, we praise you and we worship you for who you are. Amen.